1: Hello, welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host, and this series is in cooperation with Cinda which brings you thought, leaders, and business stories from all over the world. Now, you can learn more about Cinda, which is a nonprofit association in Europe under www.cinda.org. Now, this show doesn't only bring you business leaders from all over the world, we also have listeners from all over the world. So good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you might be listening from today. And if you're new to the show, let me tell you what this series is about. The series is about the impact, globalization, digital transition, the connection the world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success. In this series, we're talking about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, digital transitions, and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance and business values and ethics that can impact your organization or your individual career. So please listen to us live every Tuesday, 3 p.m. specific time. And if you miss us live, don't worry about it because we are on every major podcast platform on the net. You can find us on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify. You can find us any place. Now, if you'd like to reach out to me and tell me what you'd like to hear about on this, Podcast, please uh, send your insights to leadership beyond borders at gmail.com or connect to me on my website, leadership beyond net. Now, if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless of your business is international or local, make sure you join us each week and we'll make sure you take away something useful for either your business or yourself. Now, on to today's episode, and we have two returning guests, two very special guests. In April and May, we did a three-part series on the book Battle Tested, which focuses on the Battle of Gettysburg during the American Civil War, and what this battle could teach us about leadership. And the podcast was intriguing. Now, if you missed it, go to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America. The three podcasts, the three series we had on Battle Tested were between April 20th and May 4th. And you can find them on Voice America or on Google Apple or any of the podcast platforms now the leadership lessons we recognize while talking about this battle intrigued me so much that I asked the two authors of the book to come back today and talk to us a little bit more about the leadership lessons that we can learn from military leaders and our guests today are Dr. Jeffrey McCausland and he is the owner of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And since 2000, both domestic and internationally, Dr. Coslin has conducted numerous executive leadership development workshops and consulted for leaders in public education, U.S. government institutions, nonprofit organizations and corporations. Now, Jeffrey is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and a former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College. He's a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson's College and a national security consultant for CBS radio and television. During his military career, he served in a variety of command staff positions, both in the United States and Europe, and during the Kosovo crisis and operations Desert Shield and Storm. And this included Time working on the National Security Council in the White House as well as commanding in combat. And he is a graduate of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, the U.S. Army Airborne and Ranger Schools and the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And he holds both a bachelor, he holds a master's degree and PhD from the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And he is co-author of Battle-Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century with Colonel Tom Fossler. And... uh, Colonel Fossler uh, had 30 years in the U.S. Army. He commanded infantry platoons in Vietnam War and mechanized infantry uh, battalion task force in Germany. He is a graduate of Pennsylvania Military College. Georgia State University and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College and the U.S. Army War College. He's taught military history, strategy, leadership at the U.S. Army War College and is a former director of the U.S. Army Military. Now, he's also a historian. He's written many books and has television credits. Some of his books are The Gettysburg Campaign, A Field Guide to Gettysburg, a field guide to Antietam, and battle-tested, as we talked about in our other series, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons. So, gentlemen, gentlemen, welcome back. It's so great to have you back.
2: Wonderful to be here, Kimberly. Kimberly, is great.
1: Yeah. Great to be so, here. Yeah, it's just so exciting because we learned so much in those 3 and I just want to kind of continue on the discussion. So, I mean, there are when we when we talked about battle tests, we spent a lot of time focused on two primary lead, leaders, um Confederate General Robert E. Lee and Union leader George Meade. And um what, what I know from the military and what you can learn from the military that always impresses me is leadership style and, and how a, a leader must be aware of their own leadership style. So can we talk a little bit about you know, leadership style and, and how important that is and maybe look at um, Lee and Meade as examples on, on what we can learn from this? Sure,
2: I'll, uh, I'll take this one on, and, and uh, Lee and Meade. Um, Lee, 56 years old at, the, at Gettysburg, at the time of Gettysburg, uh, he graduated from West Point, 1829. Uh, initially, he was an engineer uh, at Gettysburg. Of course, he's a combat commander. Uh, his counterpart, George Meade, uh, 48 years old, also a West Point graduate, uh, but uh, a few years later, than Lee graduated. Um, Meade, interestingly enough, was commissioned in the field of artillery, then left the army for a period of time to be a civil engineer, but came back in time uh, to participate in the U.S. war with Mexico, 1846 to 48. So what these gentlemen have in common are uh, they're both professional soldiers, uh, they have a West Point education, both were engineers, and both uh, are Mexican War veterans. So in the case of uh, in the case of of Lee, his preferred uh, leadership style was to provide his subordinates with broad guidance and what must be accomplished consistent with his vision for the end state of his organization. He's able to do this term of broad guidance in part because, first of all, it's a reflection of his personality in that uh, he, being a consummate Southern gentleman, wished not to offend anyone so he would provide general guidelines for what must be done rather than being directive uh, directive in nature. Uh, and he's also successful on this because he has, um, up through the Battle of Chancesville, that is, up through May of 1863, he has three senior subordinate commanders that are very comfortable operating within this broad frame of guidance, just general suggestions of, uh, of what must be done. but. Uh, unfortunately for uh, Lee and uh, and those commanders, Jackson is killed at Chancellorsville and must be replaced. Jackson cannot be replaced. He was good enough general, he could not be replaced by any one man. So Lee replaces him with two men, uh, General Hill and General Ewell. Unfortunately, Hill and Ewell will not have their best days. At Gettysburg, this is their first major combat in the newly elevated position, and so Uh, Lee is not initially aware of it, but his leadership style of providing that broad guidance uh, is going to need to be changed. But it takes the first two days of a three-day battle for him to understand that that's what has to happen. In contrast to Lee's uh, leadership style, uh, by all available evidence, it appears that George Meade's style was uh, more direct in nature not only in giving instruction but also in supervising the execution where lee saw his job as uh as giving the general guidance and resourcing for what must happen uh and putting his troops at the right place on the battlefield uh at the right time then he stepped back and quote in his words left it all to providence well mm-hmm. mead isn't that type of personality He's going to be more directive in nature, and uh, in fact, uh, his closest associates labeled his persona as the old snapping turtle. So, apparently, uh, he was more confrontational in his leadership style with his peer group and certainly with his uh, senior subordinate commanders.
1: So, so with with those two styles, okay, and you said that Lee had to change his style over time, Um do Do these leaders do you have to be flexible if you're if you're if your natural style, and I think I'll put this to Jeffrey, if your natural mm-hmm. style is you know broad, I mean, how flexible do you have to be to see when you need to change that? And if your natural natural style is directive, you know how do you know if that's effective among the team that you're leading?
3: Well, you're exactly right, Kimberly. I wouldn't call it flexible. I would say you have to be aware. You have to be self-aware, which I think is one of the key parts of effective leadership and one, for example, that Daniel Goleman talks a great deal about in his writings on emotional intelligence and probably is the key principle when you talk about emotional intelligence. But to back up a little bit, you know, in the book, we talk about a definition of leadership provided by another great military officer, that being Dwight Eisenhower, who also, of course, would serve as president of the United States for two terms. And Eisenhower defined leadership as deciding what has to be done and getting others to want to do it. And, you know, he suggests in that other short definition that one of the things you have to do is to build consensus and get everybody to buy into the direction you're going to go if, in fact, you're going to get maximum performance. Well, that being said, the leader has, as I said before, to assess his or her team. And as they assess their team, they've got to think about a couple of things. How experienced is my team? Those who are reporting to me directly frankly, how competent they are, and how confident they are, and perhaps then adjust my style based on that, the assessment of my team, my key leaders, and also the environment. What is the environment we're involved in? People in the organization pretty quickly pick up on the fact that the, when the organization is in crisis, and they talk about idiosyncratic credits, which is what leaders build up during times when things are going well, and you kind of spin those when things are becoming difficult. You can be more direct because everybody understands the organization is at a moment of crisis. That perhaps is something Robert E. Lee should have thought about because as Tom rightfully points out, he has these two new leaders, Richard Ewell and Ambrose Powell Hill, who've been elevated from being divisional commanders to being corps commanders, an exponential change in their requirements. And now he has got to use the same style that he used with very competent, competent, and experienced leaders. And it just doesn't go very, very well in that regard. So it would seem that as he adjusts his style and he does this consciously or unconsciously over time across the three days, it becomes very direct on the third day. There's the infamous discretionary order he gives Richard Ewell on day one. Take that hill if you deem it practicable to be so. Cemetery Hill, the center of the Union line on Cemetery Ridge. And I think in many ways, back to Lee and his mindset, he was speaking to Jackson again, that famous aggressive commander Tom mentioned, who would have done that without even being directed to. But Richard Mm -hmm. Buell, not as experienced, not as confident, not as competent, I believe, hesitates. And so the South misses an enormous opportunity, which probably would have been victory at Gettysburg and the battle being a single day.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so I think what we're taking away from this, Jeffrey, is is really the the leadership style and what we can learn from the military is is how how aware you have to be of that style in order to 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 um, act quickly and adjust quickly.
3: Exactly. Uh, Aware of your own style. What are you comfortable with? And all of us live on a style which is absolute dictatorial control to total, you know, decentralization. Everybody finds (laughs) their comfort level somewhere on that cursor. Uh, We have to be aware of where we're comfortable and then adjust our style accordingly based on the experience and the confidence we have in our team and the confidence they have in themselves. Number one, for max performance and number two, the environment. If we are in an existential crisis time, then we perhaps need to be more direct because the entire future of the organization is at risk.
1: Okay, good. Well, Beth, this is this is so fascinating, and we're going to have to take a short break. Um, and when we get back, I want to talk a little bit about – planning um, teams and succession planning, because that's one thing I think the military does really well and and where I think a lot of corporations fail at. And for our listeners, we are talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the uh, owner and founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy. And he has conducted numerous executive leadership development workshops, both domestic and internationally. He is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College and a visiting professor of national security at Dickinson College and a national conservative Con- security consultant for CBS Radio. And we are also talking with Colonel Tom Fossler, who served 30 years in the U.S. Army. He is also a historian with a number of credits on the History Channel and C-SPAN, including uh, art- American Artifacts and other credits and Civil Civil War Talk Radio. He has published. Four works, including battle-tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century Leaders. And now, if you want to reach out to these gentlemen, you can reach out to them on Diamond 6 Leadership. And that is Diamond and 6 as a number, not spelled out. And what? they are on face- No, wait, It is spelled out? It's,
3: it is spelled it's,
1: out. It is spelled out. Yes, Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. Because I'm looking at the Twitter. Okay. Diamond Six Leadership on Facebook. Is that spelled out? Jeffrey or not? No. It is. It is. Okay. Okay. So uh, you can reach him on Diamond Six Leadership and you can reach Jeffrey on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland and on Twitter under McCausland. LJ. So please reach out to them. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back.
4: Be sure to like the Voice America Business Channel on Facebook. You'll find out about up-to-the-minute business happenings and get ideas from entrepreneurs and business professionals. Search Voice America Business or click the like button under the player and stay ahead of the curve. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at VoiceAM Business. Again, that's at VoiceAM Business. And stay current.
0: You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program.
1: Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's Business Channel. And I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we are talking about what we can learn from leadership in the military. And we're talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the owner of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, and Colonel Tom Fossler, who is a retired U.S. Army colonel. And they're both the authors of Battle Tested Gettysburg Leadership Lessons for the 21st Century." Century." leaders. And we had a three-part series from April through May on Battle Tested. And if you missed that, please go back and listen to this. And we're continuing our discussion about what we can learn from the military and leadership. So before before the the break, we're talking about style and how important that was, um, how important it is for leaders to find their style and be able to be aware of that. and also what we see in the military that that works really well and I don't see it working in, in so many corporations that well is succession planning and you talked about you talked about that with um, replacing Jackson at Gettysburg with two other people and um, I've seen a lot of examples of great succession planning. So can you can somebody when either when you talk a little bit about that,
3: Let me take that on, Kimberly, and you're know, you exactly right, not only on the Confederate side, the succession from Jackson to Richard Ewell and Ambrose Powell Hill, which is done consciously before the start of the battle, but on day one at the Battle of Gettysburg, the Union goes through five different commanders on the field at any given moment, and this is because more senior people arrive and they take control because they're more senior or because of people getting killed, as happens to John Reynolds who's the second commander of the force on the field when he arrives and is killed within about an hour of his arrival military culture is such that everybody knows from the lowest private to the highest ranking general that part of the culture is that the most senior person present is in command. And if he or she is incapacitated, killed or wounded, the next most senior person takes over. It's all based on rank and date of rank if the two officers are of the same rank. And that continues down in combat, down to the most junior person, obviously, because in combat, this has to be done quickly. Everybody has to understand who's taken charge. Everybody's accepted that as an organizational norm. And this is different than from a cultural standpoint from a corporation which doesn't have that part of their culture. A.T. Kearney, a very famous uh, international business consulting corporation, once did a study and said one of the most important things that corporations lack is really succession planning, and they went on to examine what happened to major corporations when the boss died or was incapacitated due to injury or a disease, went through a divorce, suffered the loss of a child, whatever catastrophe might befall them. And in almost every case, they found the corporation's uh, value, its, pro- its profit, et cetera, dropped precipitously mm-hmm. in the quarter that followed. And logically, having talked to CEOs about this and senior people, they have said to me, you know, the one thing most CEOs are not terribly worried about is who's going to succeed them <laughs> because they might be succeeded before they're ready to be succeed. <laughs> so it's really a board responsibility, but it's critical part of strategic planning for an organization as you move ahead. Think about this. This particular week, week ironically, uh, one of the largest corporations on the planet, Amazon, $1.7 trillion, will go through a succession as Jeff Bezos will hand over the position as CEO of Amazon to his deputy Now, they've gone through a lot of preparation for this, so I don't expect you're going to see a precipitous uh, downside in Amazon. But it's clear these two guys are a very, very different style. Uh, Bezos being very aggressive and very outspoken and very demanding, and the deputy taking over seems to be a much more relaxed guy who's already talked about part of his style is to help Amazon, as he calls it, Find its heart because while the corporation has done well economically and profitability, it's undergone an awful lot of criticism, particularly during the pandemic, for how it treats its employees. And the new guy wants to recapture that particular part of the ethos of the organization.
1: Yeah, and I I think you you hit the nail on the head when you said that the succession planning is really part of strategic planning. Um, and and it seems like you know you have a a. The military must have an order, especially when you're in battle, because those things have to be done quickly. But, but you know, in organizations, sometimes the succession planning part kind of falls to the side as part of the strategic planning. And before we get before we get into strategic planning, I, I want to talk about. And when I was doing preparing for this, I was thinking about the succession planning, and I was thinking about how the military is really an incredible example of teams and diverse teams okay um because people people from all walks of lives all cultures all economic levels come go into the military and then they become a team so i mean this is hard to do in corporations how is it working and and how does the military make that work
3: well, you we try that as well. You know, if you look at diversity, and let's take it back to the battle test of the American Civil War, it's certainly interesting, Tom and I have talked about this frequently, that on the Union side, over 20% of all federal troops that fought in the Civil War were not born in the United States. They were they were immigrants from some other country. Now, there were whole regiments. For example, in the Union Army that spoke German or might have spoke Italian because that's where they all came from as an ethnic group. Also, by the end of the American Civil War, roughly 180,000 African-Americans, freedmen and former slaves, would fight for the Union, which would be about 10 percent of the overall army. And another 19,000 or so would serve in the United States Navy. About 40,000, some would estimate, of those African-American troops would actually die during the war, many from disease. We saw the same thing in World War II, though the Army remained segregated. Uh, we had the arrival of certainly black units that performed well in World Wars One and Two. We had the arrival of women in uniform that performed, performed some amazing tasks. And then after the war, of course, the mm-hmm. Army is integrated by President Harry Truman. And now today, if you look at the U.S. military at least, about 20 percent of the active force are women. And about 40% of the active force, those in uniform, are people of, people of color, reflecting also the changed demography uh, of the United States. And we think about this, this all comes down to co- cohesion of the organization being an operational necessity. These organizations have got to perform, perform well in combat. They have to exist in a, in a spirit of cohesion, and one can't do that if you cannot bring this diverse team together. The military's had its own problems in this regard, and Tom and I could talk at length. I know he discussed it as well as young officers in the aftermath of Vietnam when there were significant racial issues in the U.S. military, and there are some even today. And there are other real questions today about sexual harassment and white nationalism, which are part and parcel of cohesion. But I think the military's willingness to confront those, deal with those. Well, emphasizing operational cohesion, that's what we're all about, and our values are key. And I think the lesson there for other leaders is to remember, what are, are we all about as an organization? And emphasizing the group, this is what we're about as a group, not as individuals, as a group, number one. Number two, what are our values? And almost every organization will value you know, diversity, equality, uh, or some aspect of respect of human beings. Uh, and therefore will confront these problems, and organizations that do poorly, frankly, will, will ignore these particular issues, and particularly one today. And finally, I'd say, you know, we found by research that building diverse teams are not just politically correct. correct. It's not just a nice thing that, to mm-hmm. do uh, for that particular reason alone. Studies have shown that organizations that are diverse or have more innovation stay better connected to their clients or stakeholders, have more fresh ideas, and so we've seen this evolve in the U.S. military, and we're seeing it evolving uh, in the American society and American business writ large.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean that—that that is really where it comes down to—is also this contribution. I mean, first of all, uh a, a um, combined goal, okay, of values um, uh, for the teams, and then also the contribution, you know, diverse points of views also contribute to, as you said, more innovation and planning, and um, probably better planning, and I'd like to, to, to jump out on planning, because that's one thing, I've, another thing I think that maybe corporations can use and um, learn from, from military, and I understand that most military leaders, you know, there's strategic planning and there's operationally planning. And um, can you talk about how these differ and and what we can learn from the military strategic versus operation planning? Yeah, I think I'll take that one
2: on. In, mm-hmm. in, in terms of strategic planning, we're looking at, at the big picture. Uh, the overall goals uh, for the organization What is the end state? We're gonna go through all these operations. We're going to uh, build these companies. We're gonna produce these products. Uh, In the end, what's the end state for the organization? What does the organization look like? And so the strategic plan will carry uh, the individual through or the group, through the the staff, through that, that planning process on what's the end state look like and how do we get there? And Oftentimes, in terms of uh, strategic planning, we speak of ends, ways, and means. The ends being the identification of the the long-term goals and objectives uh, for the organization, the ways being the methods by which uh, those uh, goals can be achieved, and then the means is the material resources such as the people, the money, the equipment necessary to get there. So that's the strategic plan. In contrast, operational planning is a subset of the strategic plan. Uh, you're looking at a much more defined uh, end state for a subgroup of the overall uh, organization. Um, so you've got um, perhaps smaller, smaller objectives. You've got uh, a little different, uh, smaller way to go uh, to get there. And uh, we speak of, uh, as an example, the Gettysburg Campaign in in the American Civil War, which goes from uh, June, early June, to middle of July, but yet within that is a three-day battle. So the Confederate Army is operating at the beginning on a strategic plan to do, to do thus and so to come into the Northern Territory and uh, defeat the Northern Army on Northern soil, and uh, at the same time... Uh, restock their their food supplies from the untouched farms here uh, in the north of the Potomac river, so that 's the strategic uh, operation, but the operational part of it is the actual battle itself you see for the mm-hmm. three days of that of that total period and uh, the uh,
1: yeah. And, and Tom, just a quick question. So part of this operational part is, you know, the military is always known as being prepared and, and, and that is, that's part of the, you know, preparation is, you know, I mean, is there a perfect plan and, you know, are you, do you have to always be prepared to go left, right, or middle? You know?
2: Well, uh, no, there's no such thing as a perfect plan. <laughs> and, and, and I'm going to go back to, uh, to uh, our, our mentor and, and, an abstentia, General Eisenhower, who said, "Planning is everything, but the plan is nothing." What uh, what he meant by that is the steps that you go through in the planning process are going to help you identify all the things that need to be done in order to reach that end state that you've described. But yet, when it comes time to execute the plan, you know we're always fond of saying that uh, in the military that no plan survives the first shot fired because there's going to be something invariably that you had not planned on. And we also have to remember that your adversary, your market competitor, has a vote against your plan. They may not react the way you thought they were, the way you predicted they would. So there is no perfect plan. The value is not necessarily the plan itself. It can be used as a guideline on how to get to where you're going, but it's not going to be 100% uh, uh, verbatim of of what what you thought you were going to do. The value comes from the planning process itself, because Mm -hmm. from that, then you come up with all the various contingencies that
1: you must give attention to. Uh, and that that kind of is being prepared. <laughs> so being prepared because you don't have a perfect plan. Uh, we're going to take another break, and um, and when we come back, I'd I'd like to talk a little bit about the the decision making process and also the the morale and you know the, in the in the military because I think there's a lot we can learn from there. And for our listeners, we're talking to. Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy, and you can find Diamond Six on the net under www.diamond6leadership, and that is six spelled out, S-I-X, and you can also find Diamond Six on Facebook and Twitter. And Instagram, and that is with diamond6 as in the number. And our other guest is Colonel Tom Fossler, Fossler and he is a sort of 30 years in the U.S. Army, and he has a number of television credits on the History Channel to his credit, as well as he's published four books, including Battle Tested, Gettysburg Leadership Lessons, for 21st Century Leaders and that is co-authored with with uh, Dr. McCausland and if you want to reach out to Jeffrey he is on LinkedIn under Jeffrey McCausland and on Twitter under MCCAUSLJ and as I said Diamond Six Leadership is on internet so please reach out to them and with that we're going to take a short break
4: be sure to like the Voice America Business Channel on Facebook. You'll find out about up-to-the-minute business happenings and get ideas from entrepreneurs and business professionals. Search Voice America Business or click the Like button under the player and stay ahead of the curve. Business news and discussions are always changing. In order to stay ahead of the game, sometimes you need to be a follower. You can follow the Voice America Business Channel on Twitter at Voice AM Business. Again, that's at Voice AM Business And stay current.
0: You are listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders@gmail.com. at com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders@gmail.com. at com. Now back to this week's
1: program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders on Voice America's business channel. And I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we are talking to... Dr. Jeffrey McCausland, and he is a retired colonel from the U.S. Army and a former dean of academics at the U.S. Army War College and a visiting professor of national security at Dixon College and a national security consultant for CBS Radio, and Colonel Tom Fosler, who served 30 years in the U.S. Army. He is a historian. He has published four books, including the book Battle Tested Gettysburg Lessons for the 21st Century, which is co-authored with Dr. McCausland. And so we have been talking, you know, we're talking a little bit about the book and some of the things in the book, but well, we're talking about leadership and, and what leaderships. We can listen, uh, learn from the military. And we just talked about um, planning process and being prepared. Okay, and uh, I I want to kind of before we jump into talking about decision making and preparation, um, we've we're just coming out of this pandemic and we've we've weren't prepared. So that was a lack of preparation. And we were just talking about how we had to prepare. And we've seen a lot of good decisions, but with some poor ones. And one of the things that we've seen is of the results of the pandemic is the stress and burnout among employees. And one of the things I think we can learn from the military is that morale and mental health of everyone is so critical for performance. And and you do have systems in place in the military that take care of that. So could one of you please talk a little to that?
3: Let me take that on. Before I start on that, Kimberly, let me harken back just for a second. When you were talking with Tom there at the end of the discussion of planning, and, you know, again, the plan is nothing, and planning is everything, as Tom said from Dwight Eisenhower. But one of the key parts of this, to me, is the leader controls the clock. He or she controls time as a critical resource. And so we've got to keep in mind, when do we want the organization to begin executing this plan. And if we take all the time thinking through all the options and coming up with an elaborate plan and then presenting them with a plan, playing our team with a plan and telling them to begin execution immediately, execution is going to be poorly done. So one of the things the military uses, I think organizations could apply, is a so-called two-thirds, one-third rule. In other words, where am I at now in the planning process and when do I want my organization to begin executing? One-third of that time between now and then is mine to complete the plan. And then start briefing them on what I want them to do. Two-thirds of that time belongs to them. So they can absorb the plan, think it through, discuss it with their team so it goes down to the organization so we begin execution. Because otherwise, you can have the greatest plan going, but it'll be poorly executed. Back to this question of moral and mental health and how the military does that. And we've done it well and we've done it poorly. Uh, Back at Gettysburg, you know, the evening of the second day, Robert E. Lee, for example, is going to make a critical decision for his organization, which is on enemy territory. He knows he can't stay there indefinitely. What am I going to do? And there's clear evidence by diaries that also he's having some real health challenges across these three days. Some people believe He may have suffered a mild heart attack. There's no doubt about it. He has a bad back uh, and may have a sciatic nerve problem in one leg. There's clear evidence by diaries that he is suffering from what is called old soldier's disease or or dysentery as he's making trips back and forth from his headquarters to the privy. So how much sleep he was getting, how healthy he was, and we know all of us as human beings, as individuals, that'll affect our decision making. So back to what I said to you before about emotional intelligence and the leader needing to be self-aware. That begins with the question, particularly in moments of crisis like the pandemic, how am I doing individually? And the pandemic, as I told corporate leaders for the last year or more, look, this is the marathon. This is not the 100 yard dash. And you've got to care for yourself along the way. As I was going off to combat, I had a chance conversation with a psychologist who told me something I never forgot. And he said, remember, you have a moral responsibility to get sleep because you're going to have to make tough decisions that are going to affect the health and well-being of those people who work for you. And you got to put yourself in the best possible position to do that. So the leader has to care for themselves. That's not weakness. That's required. And then the second question, how is my team doing? And back to emotional intelligence, one of the key aspects is empathy. Not that I'm easy on people, but that I can understand where they're coming from, and as I work with them, I show a glimmer of empathy for them, optimism about the organization in the future, and I'm also publicly able to regulate my emotions so I don't lose it, which is never helpful if the boss loses his or her temper. Mm -hmm. the military, we stress a number of things that might be helpful. One thing we talk about is footlocker counseling, which means finding time to individually talk about to key leaders about how they're doing personally, as well as how they're doing in a performance sense. We also stress so-called taking care of your buddy, your so-called battle buddy. And that's important, I think, during the pandemic, urging your employees to talk to each other. How are we doing? How are you doing? How's Joe doing? And having that kind of dialogue amongst themselves. And then finally, urging your senior team, particularly in difficult moments, to take advantage of the opportunity to mentor and coach younger leaders to get them through a difficult moment. This transition back to the office, you mentioned a moment ago from the pandemic, I think will be one of the most difficult periods of time. The next six months I predict will be more difficult than the last six months. One CEO I read about recently said, "You know, if you can go to a New York restaurant, you can return to the office. Well, that might be true to a degree, that approach may not work because organizations are adapting And and high-quality, talented people know I can find a job someplace else, which allows me more flexibility in my lifestyle and my work style that I have found particularly attractive. So I'm not sure that's the best solution if I was advising a CEO. You know, in May, Kimberly, a survey of 100 companies conducted by McKinsey discovered that 9 out of 10 of them plan to combine remote and on-site working Mm -hmm. even after it was safe to work. And how we make that transition is an enormous question over the next few months.
1: Yeah, no, I I think that's a really good point, um, Jeffrey, and um, and uh, I hope you know most of our leaders, you know, and our people, our listeners are listening to that. And what what I really what really struck me is what you said about um, you you have the responsibility as a leader to take care of yourself because you do have to make decisions, okay. And um, if you're not getting enough sleep or you're not healthy, then you can't make good decisions. And and um, in the military we see you know military leaders have to make tough decisions. Decisions, okay, really tough decisions, and not that corporate do, don't have to do that because they have to do that too. But um, in the military, it's a matter of sometimes life and death. So, I mean, what is there anything we can learn from the decision-making process from um, that military leaders use?
2: Well, Kimberly, I think that uh, the decision-making process is uh, the same, whether it's military or or. Uh, or a business uh, organization, uh, in that the leader has got to make a thorough estimate of the situation, gathering in all the available information that they have uh, available to them uh, to 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 make that decision. And they must make the decision. They can't. They cannot forestall making Ooh. a decision. Uh, General Colin Powell used to tell us, if you've got forty to sixty percent of the information you think you need to make a decision, go ahead and make the decision because. The situation, if you if you wait, if you delay, is uh, is only going to get worse, or it won't be the same situation that's confronted you. Uh, and so one of the examples of, of a decision on the battlefield is uh, Colonel uh, Strong Vincent, who is a brigade commander commanding uh, 1,400 soldiers. He's under orders to take those soldiers to a place called the Wheatfield to reinforce uh, uh, the the friendly forces there against the the attacking confederates but on the way to the wheat field before he gets there he receives new information from a trusted source but someone not in his chain of command someone from outside any authority over him and so he's got to decide and and that, that new information is no we don't need you to go to the wheat field we need you to go up here to this hill called Little Round Top uh, it's undefended currently so he's got to decide: Does he abandon his uh, existing orders, or does he react to information received from a trusted agent, but no one, in, but not anyone in his chain of command? So it's those kind of uh, uh, tough decisions, and he he can't wait. He has to make immediate assessment of the situation and decide what's best, not only for his organization but the overall effort of his army.
3: You know, and Kimberly, when Tom and I talk about that story for business leaders today, we use it to illustrate two very important principles. One is initiative, you know, and frequently I've had the opportunity to stand in front of corporate groups and I say to them, let me see a show of hands. Everybody in the room who's opposed to initiative in your organization, please raise your hand. Well, that usually elicits a laugh because everybody publicly (laughs) says, oh, no, I want to have a lot of initiative in my organization. And then I ask them the second question. What are you doing to encourage initiative in your organization? Mm. (laughs) If people do something, try to do something that they think is the right thing to do for the company as a whole, doesn't turn out well, if you take them out, you fire them, you publicly reprimand them guess what? You just killed initiative in the organization. So you've got to be willing as a leader to embrace risk and realize that things aren't going to go perfectly, but you still want that climate of initiative to exist in your organization. And the second we we talk about is a concept called the OODA loop. which was created by an old fighter pilot by the name of John Boyd, who trained other fighter pilots. And Boyd argued in aerial combat, what you have to do is observe the overall environment you're operating in orient on what's the key changing factor in that environment right now, make a decision against that point and act and do that more quickly than your opponent in aerial combat. He'll retire from the Air Force and take that concept, write books and advise corporations because it's the same thing. What's going on in the environment my corporation that's operating in that's changing and how do I act in that more quickly than my competition? So this shows the need for initiative and building a climate of initiative as well as that decision making by good old John Boyd on the OODA Loop, doing that more quickly than your opponent.
1: The OODA Loop, I like that. That is really key. Um, I, I, that is a really great way because we're getting we're getting towards the end of our of our um, talk today, and it always goes so by so fast with you guys with so much information that uh, I hope to have you again. But um, for for today, just. Um, Tom, a last word or a last piece of advice for our listeners: um, What what do you think the the biggest thing we can learn from the military leadership is? Well, I think uh, that goes back to um, uh, the leader developing the
2: organization. I should think whether you're talking about a military unit, a for-profit company, a non-for-profit organization. I think what what the leadership, the senior leader in particular wishes to have is a high-performing, survivable, sustainable organization over time. How do you create that organization? Well, in large measure, in my view, you create it through leader development from within the organization. Mm -hmm. In other words, you furnish, you build, you mentor, you train, you coach, your own replacement. So that when you step aside, as Jeff Bezos is gonna do this week, then you've got someone else well-qualified to
1: immediately step in so the organization does not falter. Yeah, I think that's, that's really key. And, and Jeffrey, what would be your, your last piece of, of insight on what we can learn? Well, I'm going to quickly
3: mention three. The first, I would say, is this importance of time. And leaders don't think about time as a resource that they manage, but it is. And it, perhaps it's the most inel- inelastic resource they have. And the other side of the coin of time is Timing. When is the moment to make a critical decision for my organization is something they've got to consider. The second thing is leaders have got to park their ego and realize that I need to separate what's best for me from what's best for the organization, which sounds easy. But we all have ego and it's valuable. But I really have to think through what's best for the organization, focus on its mission. And then last but not least, leaders adapt to change. And my goodness, we live in a dramatically changing environment right now, accelerated by the pandemic. And I often hearken back to that boss I had in the Pentagon who used to say, if you don't like change, you're going to like irrelevance less.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah well thank you so much Um, great tips uh, great conversation again and for our listeners we've been talking to Dr. Jeffrey McCausland and the founder of Diamond Six Leadership and Strategy that's on you can look them up on the web under www.diamond6 and six is S-I-X spelled out leadership.com and Colonel Tom Fossler um, and uh, Colonel Fossler has 30 years in the U.S. Army. He commanded uh, Infantry Plume in Vietnam and a Mechanicized Infantry Battalion Task Force in Germany. Um, Both gentlemen are the co-authors of Battle Tested. And if you'd like to look up battle-tested leadership lessons, lessons for the 21st century leaders, uh, please, it's on Amazon. We also did a three-series podcast on battle-tested, so go look at Leadership Beyond Borders between April through May, and you can listen to that podcast also. And if you'd like to reach out to uh, jeffrey you can reach out to him under jeffrey mccauslin on linkedin and on twitter and on facebook you can find diamond six leadership and this time on facebook it's with a number six and not spelled out so you've been listening to leadership beyond borders on voice america's business channel and this oh, Broadcast has been brought to you by Cinda, uh, one of Europe's largest non-profit digital associations serving small and business small businesses in Europe. And with that, thank you, gentlemen, very very much again. And listeners, tune in to us next week. Thanks, guys. All right, Thanks, Kimberly, thank you. Okay, take care, listeners. Tune on next week.